Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. The beginning of this message was looking at uh, bringing back the old, uh, not the old, the model that we mentioned several times. If you're reading Scripture, the way you read it is always who is talking, who is listening, and what is the context? In other words, what's the real life situation going on at the time? What's really going on? And the reason being is that to apply any scripture, any scripture, you have to start with the real life origin and then you can work into the real life application. Beauty about prayer, like we did this morning, is that's real life. You know, the pain that people are feeling, that's real life. Operations, real life. Things that are going on that need settling, healing, correcting, fixing, real life. And if we sterilize scripture, we have nothing to work from. So you'll have to pardon me if I I bring you into chapter 10. It is a very real life chapter. But a lot of it is stuff that's kind of lost a little bit on us. So I'm going to set you up against the backdrop as we go on. We continue. The formula still fits that we talked about. You have two opposites that John writes in this way of two opposites, and it it brings one great truth from the two opposites. And the two opposites this week are true and false. True and false. You've got true and false saviors true and false spiritual leaders and true and false followers. And we're going to see the great truth in it is who the true Savior really is. So the entire chapter rests on the basics of the ancient Jewish culture. And basically the society was a shepherd society. And it's important to realize a fact that it was Uh, loved its sheep but the sheep were for wool production which is different than say Britain that they just love eating their sheep love their lamb chops thing is when you eat sheep you just don't keep them around that long and it's like nothing personal (laughs) but shepherds who have sheep that produce wool for them it's very personal the sheep are part of their family that's an extended Uh, situation going on so the sheep mean a lot and that's the background from which Jesus is speaking here the sheep were your family sometimes you had to hire a shepherd but for the most part you kept it within the family that's how it worked and the whole core of chapter 10 that made a lot of sense to this culture not so much to ours was the fact of how sheep respond to the human voice. One more time. Are you 
Yes, it's true. Sheep really do listen to their own shepherd's voice and not really to anyone else. It's all based around that. But we're not uh, through with the subtleties of the chapter because Jesus is going to speak from two different scenarios that we wouldn't catch as casual listeners in our time, but they had no trouble in this time. And the first scenario, the first scenario he speaks from goes from... Uh, the first part of the chapter, uh, John 10, 1 to 6, and it goes like this. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Basically, what's going on here in the um, situation of the ancient Jewish cultures, what they did uh, was the villages had uh, courts in their homes, that uh, little uh, pens in the home, if you will, but they were walls about six feet tall, and they had doors on them. And generally for a villager, there wasn't enough sheep usually for one person. It was kind of like small farms. They didn't have that many sheep on their own. So what they did is in the village, they would have a few people designated, maybe uh, sons or a few daughters. They were designated as the village shepherds. And what they would do in the morning for most of the seasons of the year, they go from door to door and the owner of his sheep, whatever, the owner of that few sheep would open his door. The sheep would know the voice. I guess they had the taka 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 thing down and they would follow the village shepherd. They knew the voice. So it was up to the owner, open the door, let his, and you can see it's kind of like the way we bring kids to school. I was just saying on the bus, you know, you have a kids and the bus goes by and they all get on. So I don't know if Bob ever did that. Bob, when you were picking up kids, did you ever go, teka, 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 hey? No, he didn't call kids like that. <laughs> oh, he used some language. All right. Good language, I hope, Bob. <clears throat> but it was the same idea. You had them open the door, each place, each courtyard let out. So you would end up with a, a rather large community herd of sheep, and they would go to the nearest pastures and uh, then at night bring them back. But that's the scene from which he's speaking of in the first part of this. Uh, and if we were going to dig into language a little bit, we'd see. 
And the courtyards were generally, they had like a stone wall. It was about six feet tall. They had their door that they kept closed. And so if somebody wanted to steal the sheep, if there was a thief, they would scale that six-foot wall and try and get a sheep before they got caught. But of course, as we've seen, the sheep would tend to run away from a voice rather than uh, a stranger than run to them. So it was a great metaphor that he was setting up here with how things worked when you had your sheep in the courtyard. Now let's go back to our little uh, formula of studying scripture. Who's Jesus talking to? Well, he's talking to Pharisees, isn't he? He's talking to temple priests. As a matter of fact, uh, he's at the temple. We'll find out in a bit. So these guys quite literally hold the doors to the courts that let in or out whoever the flock of Israel will be exposed to. That was their job. They are responsible for what shepherd gets control of the flock. Now Jesus starts out talking about the village side of it. The Pharisees don't quite get what he's driving at. So he starts putting a finer point to it. And this is where the scenario shifts. It shifts from the village courts and going out to the fields that are close to the villages to going to the back country like they would have to do certain times of the year. So now the metaphor becomes this. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So what's going on here is this, is that in certain seasons, the the sheep had to go to more distant pastures. Well, then it became uh, unreasonable, uh, uh, inefficient to try and come all the way back to the village. So what they would do is when they went out into the wilderness, the back country to pasture, they had to still have some form of sheep pens. And so what they would do is they'd take rocks, that's a pretty nicely made one there, to be honest, and they would make a sheep pen with the stones, and then they would put thorn bushes on the top of those stones, and uh, that would keep out the wild animals. And then what they would do is the shepherd, him or herself, would, in that kind of crescent of stones where you see that opening, it's not a gate missing, what they would do is the shepherd himself or herself would be the gate. They would become a living gate for their family of sheep. They were known to uh, really uh, do all kinds of things to keep those 
uh, sheep safe. They would keep out thieves. They would guard against animals. They would decide when it was time to go one way or the other. So when Jesus says, I am the gate, that's exactly what he means. He says, I am the gate. I am the living gate. The right things get through and the wrong things don't. The dangerous things are kept outside and the saving things are allowed in. So from that physical reality, that's what uh, the spiritual reality was being set up from. Is a very real life thing. So now that we understand a little bit, this is how the shepherding community, this came to their minds. It was like, hey, yeah, that's the way it works. They had the mental picture right off. So Jesus used what really clicked. And then by the second half of the chapter, things really come to a fine point. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that we have the sheep thing down, where we're going now is into the real-life situation that they were in as a country at the time. And we still have to stay in the culture a little bit. Now, Solomon's colonnade was uh, an interesting place within the temple. And that was the location. But let's start a little bit with the time it's called. We said the Festival of Dedication. It's also known as the Festival of Lights. And in our time today, there's even a name. We know it a little bit more. If any Gentiles know a Jewish holiday, it's usually this one. Anyone care for bragging rights to... Okay, there. Okay, all kinds of people can brag now. That's exactly right. Hanukkah is it, and Hanukkah, guys, is a really interesting um, holiday, if you will. And so when we think of it, we kind of like think of it as Jewish Christmas, because it falls essentially at the same time. But it, the story and the focus behind it are entirely different. Uh, and let me go a little bit into their history because this is what was on the minds of everybody listening to Jesus in that place at this time. Now, the quick story of Hanukkah goes like this. In the 4th century, we've got to go back some nearly 400 years before Christ, Alexander the Great was doing his thing and he was conquering the world, including Judea. Now, the thing about Greece conquering places back in ancient Greece... They actually had their own gospel they were putting out, and it was the gospel of human rationalism. I mean, and, and it was very, very um, attractive because when it came to human thinking, this is as good as it got. I mean, let's face it, the philosophy and, the, and what comes out of ancient Greece, we still know the names of their superstars today. 
We still follow in the Western world a lot of how they were thinking. It was some pretty big stuff. It was very attractive. So what they did was as they conquered the world as barbarians, which by the way, do you know the word barbarian came from the Greeks? Because when they listened to um, us non-Greek people, and we tried to explain things that sounded to them like blah, 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 or for them, bar, 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 bar. So we were called <laughs> barbarians. That's, uh, we just didn't reason. So they did. They spread around this wonderful culture. Fast forward two centuries. Now in the sec second century, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes in Syria was a big Greek fan. He had pictures of Socrates on the wall, posters in his bedroom. Pam's not so sure she believes me on that one. But this guy could out Alexander Alexander. He was really big. He was a true progressive of his time. He was all about enlightenment. Everybody needed to be enlightened. Well, at the time, this was the king who was uh, over Judea over Israel at the time. And this was very attractive. Humanism in its form is very attractive because we get to feel smart and it has its points. And some Jewish folks bought into it, but the majority of them didn't. They just wouldn't buy in. I could tell you, those conservatives just won't buy in. So what happens is he becomes more and more aggressive about it. It starts out as enlightenment, and then he becomes more and more aggressive. And eventually he bans the Jewish law altogether, and he makes it an offense to practice anything Jewish. As a matter of fact, it reached the point there were laws like this. If a, a, a baby was found circumcised, which of course is a mark the sign of the Jews if a baby was found circumcised the mother would be crucified with the baby hanging around her neck so much for enlightenment but this is the kind of thing that was going on uh, and, and it reached a point that the king uh, the Syrian king turned the temple the outer courts into brothels and at one point decided to offer pigs on the altar to the god Zeus. So things got pretty darn nasty for something that was supposed to be enlightened. Well, forced Greek enlightenment paints a pretty timeless picture of humanity. It's, it might come from a religious source, it might come from a humanist source, source but sometimes I think we get it backwards when... Uh, uh, people will say religion's caused all the world's conflicts. Uh, no, it's it's not whether it's religion. It's not w rather a, an ideology uh, because both uh, you can look at uh, religious things, even Christianity, some dark parts of history in Christianity, not dark Christ, not a, a not a bad or cruel Christ, just a bunch of people who were cruel in his name. Same thing with ideologies. Man, when we get into the humanism, Hellenization is what it was called then. But into our time, the same idea, good intentions, let's make a master race, modern fascism. The Nazi movement came from that kind of thing. Marxism, atheism, neo-paganism, human moralism, the free love movement of the 60s, and the gay movement that raised up in the 70s and continues 
to grow all from an idea of liberating ourselves in human enlightenment, but it ultimately seems to sink into some pretty dark sides of human nature. The sin nature hmm. starts out with something elevated, utopia, materialism, tolerance, but just disagree with humanism. Just disagree with the religion that is human-based. And it's not long before the claws come out. They did in ancient Israel. They do in our day. And it's not whether we're talking some ideology and trying to get too liberal or whether we're talking people too conservative or secular or religious. It doesn't matter. You know what it comes down to? The reason it goes that way is because the person of God gets left out. We walk away from the person of God. And if, if God, who brings moderation and intervention and transformation, if he's not the power behind it, what does that leave? Human nature. Human nature. Fallen nature. Well, that whole principle, I, I go through all this tirades, not just to, to try and spout some philosophy. Uh, I'm bringing it back into what is happening. This is real life, second century, 200 years up to the time of Christ. This is what was going on. See, back in that time, what happened with the uh, Syrian king is some, some really uh, powerful individuals on the Jewish side had had enough of what was going on. And the Jews wanted a savior. Man, they're sacrificing pigs on our altar. How worse can it get? We'll take anyone who will save us from this atrocity that's going on. Uh, enter a Jewish militia that uses uh, guerrilla warfare tactics. And a, a great leader, a great military leader among the Jews named Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus. As a matter of fact, the Jewish scripture still has the book of Maccabees in there. Now, what happened was that these guys carried out guerrilla warfare against the Syrian forces, and by uh, 164 BC, 164 BC, they won out. Well, the king fell and they won out. And so at that point, the temple was rededicated to God, all cleaned up, and they had a festival of dedication or rededication at that time. And they said, hey, this is great. We really enjoy this. Why don't we do this every year? Hence, Hanukkah becomes a holiday. They do it. It became. But what's interesting is, like I said, this, this holiday, this observance, is the one great Jewish festival that's not based on the Mosaic law. It's not based on the stuff God had given to Moses. This is something they came. It's kind of like Memorial Day and the uh, the uh, Feast of Booths, uh, all kind of wrapped up in one. But it's a fairly human-based holiday where the sword paid off, and that's the season that we're in here. It's Hanukkah season in chapter 10, and then let's look at this for a moment. The Solomon's Colonnade, an interesting place in the temple. In the temple, we talked about this before, you had your outer courts of the Gentiles and then the court of the women, and then you worked your way into the Holy of Holies, and the Gentiles better stay in the Gentile part of the, because everything else was sanctified, they weren't allowed to be in there. 
Solomon's colonnade was actually in the court of the Gentiles. And in this area, it was a section where anyone who was seeking the one true God could go. That's what this court was all about. And it was about, um, in these cold days, it offered some protection so that people who were there for ceremonies, they all would gather in the colonnade and they would discuss scripture and such. As a matter of fact, the early church, do you want to know where the first church really was? Solomon's colonnade. That's where all the first Christians met in the temple, was in Solomon's colonnade. So what I'm getting at in the real life situation going on here in this chapter, it's an amazing scene. Put together everything we've talked about and what have we got. Here they are, the temple leaders are discussing in, in the temple, and they are like the doorkeepers of the courtyard. They're meeting with Jesus, the true shepherd, and they're doing it in the one part of the temple open to the entire world where anyone seeking God could go. And they're doing it on the time of this festival where they are celebrating a religion or a military conqueror who was their savior. Is it any wonder that they wanted the next Messiah to be a replay of the Maccabees? That's what they were after. Only the Roman version now, not the Syrian version, but the Roman version. So they're not looking for a prince of peace. They are looking for a savior with a sword. And who could blame them? Life was pretty tough. It was pretty oppressive. There's just one problem. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus uh, reminds them of this in the garden, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. For all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do you know that wasn't original to Jesus in there? He was actually just paraphrasing all the way back to Genesis 9-6, which actually his saying was just simply a, a short uh, notation for what's said in 9-6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. It just doesn't seem to work. Well, let's see. In Jesus' time, did it work? We're talking about the situation of chapter 10. Well, this whole thing that's going on, the story started 60 years, basically a generation or two before Jesus comes on the scene. The uprisings have started against Rome. And in fact, they, there were a number of Maccabee wannabes. You can actually say that pretty fast. Maccabee wannabes. It's one thing, work your mouth a little. But the truth is, they did have these people who came up who would be saviors. And the religious leaders opened the doors to them. They embraced many of these people as possible saviors for... So when Jesus talks about the thieves and he talks about the false shepherds, he's talking not about the Pharisees, but about the people the Pharisees were embracing along the way. 
And so what happens with these? Well, the ones who came before Jesus, you know what happened? They just really, really ticked off the Romans. <laughs> that's what they did. They, they, did, they gave them a black eye. And you know, that's, it's the dangerous thing to give the big guy a black eye. And so then uh, the uh, Romans turned around and made life even harder for all of these people. How about after? Well, then we have Jesus saying, hey, that's not the way. We're, here I am, the Prince of Peace. You're looking for eternal life. This is the way to eternal life. Well, they were still looking for that Savior with a sword and, and all the history, uh, this is going in, we, um, Sherry, you were asking about uh, Josephus. This is where you want to get really filled in. This, is, this chapter 10 would mean all kinds of stuff to you once you read some of the works of Josephus. He was a Jewish um, uh, historian who was respected, but uh, very much spoke... Um, in a nonpartisan way. So he, he actually leaned a little bit towards the Romans. But what happened in the next 40 years after Jesus was this. You had your rebels in the south, the Edomians. And you had your rebels in the north, the Zealots. And for the most part, they didn't really like each other too much. But they kept battling away with the Romans. They had the common enemy to the point where in losing things kind of uh, uh, moved in and retreated and retreated until all of these guys who are kind of very rough individuals end up going into Jerusalem and closing the doors behind them. And once they were in there, the city went under siege and nobody was allowed to, to live, uh, to leave. This is where Josephus will tell you a whole lot. I can't even tell you the atrocities. It's just not fit to say in a church service. But let's just say that these guys who were the saviors with the swords, that they turned Jerusalem into a living hell that maybe has never been paralleled since in history. It was very, very ugly. As a matter of fact, Josephus, as he's writing, it's almost with relief. Can you believe this? This is how bad it was. Here is a Jewish historian, almost with, with relief, uh, talking about how the Romans finally break through and raise the whole city to rubble, the whole place. It was better than what these poor folks were living in, in that situation. But it makes you wonder if we went back to Christ's time and when he came in as a prince of peace and they would have accepted that, how things might have been different. There's the difference in their time. That's the real life difference between the true shepherd and a whole lot of false shepherds. Everything Jesus says bases around the first video that we looked at. Ticka, ticka, ticka. Hey, I'm going to get that down. Get me a sheep somewhere. Try it out. <laughs> yes, I have issues. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's just as true as anything with sheep, isn't it? And what will be the outcome when the, the sheep that hear his voice, they know the voice, and they follow the voice? What's the outcome? John 10, 28, and I give them eternal life. Only these sheep end up with eternal life. 
only these ones. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Wow. In our day, we still have false shepherds. Just as much as that day. And a lot for the same reason. People who want to save us from ourselves. Some people here, somebody was saying they knew Jim Jones or, or they, they had been by whatever. We had people like him, David Koresh, Marshall Applewhite. Anybody remember that guy? Heaven's Gate, and they were all going to go off in a spaceship or something. Oh, people believe all kinds of things. They think life will get better. And we have secular sa saviors. We have people who are would-be saviors uh, and use science as a platform. Not that science really does that. Gender liberation, all kinds of social causes. And the two things that whether they're religious or they're not religious and they're coming from some other angle, two things that are the same for all of them is one is they are not God's voice. They are not the authorized people of God. And second is none of them bring eternal life. No more than the Maccabees or the time in the Roman times. The would-be saviors in Jesus' time, you know what they did? They only deepened the darkness. Life just got harder by the time they were done. It just got darker by the time they were done. The false shepherds in our time, still the same, still the same. John 10, 7, 8. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. The sheep do not hear them. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and Am known and my uh, am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So this chapter it, it's about the true shepherd, no question. A whole lot of real history going on there. But did you notice it's also about the true sheep? It's also about the true sheep. Now, the fact is, in, in our day where it's uh, supposed to be rugged individualism, they, they kind of play that down. But you know we're all sheep in some regard. We all follow something. Even those who claim they don't, that we all follow something. Some ideology, some form of religions, our own version of it, Sometimes in the name of Christ, sometimes not. So what does it look like then? These sheep that follow the true shepherd, what do, what do they look like? Well, let me just throw out some practical sides of it. In Matthew 18, 20, it says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
True sheep are where the true shepherd is. It might be within these walls, it might be outside them, but they are meeting somewhere together in the name and presence of Christ. We've said it over and over. That's why the prayer was so, even in here, even this is just nominal. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But this this isn't Christianity. This is the doorway into it, really. But even in here, if, if we come here in the presence of Christ, isn't, if the true shepherd's not here, why bother? Why bother? Go somewhere where he is. And somehow the true sheep know the voice. Scripture says in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. The, the true sheep, the true collection, if you want to call this a sheep pen, the true collection of the sheep, of the true sheep, doesn't foster hatred. It's not uh, a signature of dissension. Discernment, but not judgment. It doesn't have people that push division or cause division among us. If they are, if they do, if it's that church or that individual, it, it, um, it's not his sheep. Not my words. That's what Jesus says. The great commandment. Wow, if there's anything for sheeps to write in their wool, Matthew 28:18. So actually, I'll start at 19 here. Go therefore and make disciples. Sheep go and make more sheep. Of who? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Still not done, though, sheep, teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded. And lo, if you do this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If there's anything that the sheep do, it's that. It's going to fit in with that. You know, there are two very, we're saying these are kind of a practical side of things. There's two big practical indicators for who's in the flock. And it's those of us sheep who do what we do with our time and our money. Time and money. They seem to, where we invest them will tell you a whole lot about where we sit. Time. Where in your inner thought? How much time for you in a week? In a, a course from Sunday to Sunday, there you are out there. How much time does your thought life fall on Christ or something of Christ in your life, seeing things in that way? How much effort is invested? And even if we talk about money, yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about money because everybody hates it when a pastor talks about money. That's why this will go viral up. This will have a million views. Pastor talks about money. But when we talk about it, it, you know, really, this church has come into a few good windfalls. 
in the past few years. And that's kind of an indicator then what do we do with the money that comes in. Maybe you have in your personal life. Maybe you did okay getting money back from your taxes or something. I don't know. But when you think about it, there's only three possibilities that we could maybe refer in Scripture a little bit. Three possibilities we might do with our money. One, we might be like the prodigal son of Luke 15 and squander it and spend it somewhere it just, it just shouldn't have been spent. The second thing is we might be like the faithless servant in Matthew 25 when we bury it in the ground. Hey, God gave us some money. Let's bury it in the ground. Maybe it'll grow in there or something. Or the third thing is we might be the outreach of Matthew 28. We're not told to do anything but to reach into the world and make disciples. We're supposed to do that with everything we have. Money is just a reflection of whether we do that or not. Our time is just a reflection of doing that. But the options are we'll do one of those things. And only one of them is going to be following the true shepherd. The other two can't be defined in that way. They can't be defended in that way. Chapter 10, by looking at the whole shepherd thing, there you go. There's true leaders and there's false leaders. There's true messiahs and false messiahs. And there are true sheep and false sheep. The question is, as we look at it, we see what makes you one thing or the other. And what can take an entire thing we call a church and make it one thing or the other, it's going to come down to one thing with sheep. See, the sheep hear the voice, and they know the voice. The true sheep hear the true voice, and they go toward the voice. The sheep that are not of that shepherd, or a false shepherd, and they go the other way. What voice are we listening to? And what direction are we really walking?